Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. So You're I just get... letting that go. You're yeah, just no, letting deci- it go now. I decided to just ignore it at this point, and my therapist says that's the right decision. <laughs> um, but uh, um, something came to my attention that is really upsetting me. In the- Berenstein Bears. Yes. Spelled with an A at the end. Baron stain. Baron stain. Like a stain on my childhood memories. Yeah, that yeah. is what it is because I've been spelling it with an E all these years in like my head. I can picture the covers with an E. Yeah, That's not you how thought it is. they were nice Jewish bears. Right, and I, did. Then, I thought they were nice Jewish bears. And then all of a sudden, you learn that that's not their last name at all. Yeah, sorry, guys. I I told Eric about this literally right before we started recording, and he's doing, not over I, it yet. I was doing loon calls, and she decided <laughs> instead to, <laughs> to ruin my childhood with knowledge about the Berenstein Bears. Um, but that's man. That's besides the point. I'm going to tell you about our special episode. Yeah, I was going to say instead. let's. Yeah, how about? Well, let me set it up. Can I set it up for you, like please. normal, please? Please. How about the rundown, Laura? <laughs> okay, Eric. Um, our que- our special query episode where we critique queries uh, by writers just like you, or maybe even exactly you, mm-hmm. uh, will go live next Thursday, November sixteenth. Writing by reading um, our episode where we kind of break down and examine a piece of published work will go live on the twenty third of November, also a Thursday. And first pages, which is exactly the same as the query show, but with first pages instead of queries, mm-hmm. is going live on November thirtieth. So head on over to Patreon.com and sign up if you're planning on submitting anytime soon or just want a little bit of critical feedback. Yeah. Um, I would say the last thing um, before we dive into the um, two, I think, pretty heady topics of the day. Um, But it's season two now. We've sort of reset. We've come back off a little bit of a break. And if you are new to us or if you've been listening for a while and haven't figured out, maybe you don't want to, you know, pay 10 bucks for the special episodes or whatever, a really great way to support the show that we would really, really appreciate is you going on iTunes and giving us a review and a rating um, because, well, I'm still trying to figure out how we climb the charts. Yeah. Um, all this year, the uh, year later, and I feel like we have not, you know, we have not chased down the New York Times book review podcast, yeah, most, which is my only. Most agents are very concerned with the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. We're very concerned yeah, with the with New York podcast, Times yeah. podcast. Um, yeah, I feel like that is the one omission of a very, what I thought has been a very fun year of print run. But I'd like to chase them, and I feel like the way to chase them is to get reviews based on what I can tell. That's 100% uh, so. the way to chase them, yeah. <laughs> so if you feel, if you feel so inclined... Um, go ahead and rate the show. We would gladly appreciate it. It'd be um, an act of holiday spirit. Yeah. In this, yeah. in this NaNoWriMo month. <laughs> I guess you don't have to say Mo month. It's Nano. yeah. NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo month. And the month before December. <laughs> yeah. Are you ready for December? I am ready, ready for December. We gotta get our We've already started that, making memes. Yeah, we've started... <laughs> Yeah, people like the candy cane guy. Yeah. A little Eric, ginger... Eric is kind of unofficially practicing Decembo as kind of our one test subject before we before <laughs> Decembo hits. You vetoed a lot of memes today, Laura. I did. I was really making a lot of them. Like, mm, I don't know if that one gets to go out. So when you don't see all the great memes that I'm trying it's to make fault. for you, remember that it's Laura's fault, and it be sure to at her about it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, anyway. So, should we dive in today? I think we should. Um, so, we've got two main things we want to talk about. And the first of which is, I guess, another sort of year mark. 
that's worth talking about. And that is um, not to you know be too much of a downer for our listeners or for us, but we are now about a year removed since um, the 2016 presidential election, right? Yep. Um, if we had like a little like you know sound effect board, we could play some little sad noise for you. I feel like Warr. the gong. Yeah, exactly. Like I feel like there you go. I'm um, your sound the, effect. <laughs> the gong isn't quite right for that. Um, but the reason I'm the reason I'm interested in this as it relates to this show is because um, I feel that this last year, obviously, it's been kind of hard and certainly strange. On everyone, right? Everyone who's paying any degree of attention at all to the world has found themselves to be, whether it's outraged or saddened or, you know, feeling, you know, detached or, you know, whatever it is. There's a million feelings running through um, everybody's heads. And that is the sort of situation that tends to hit writers particularly hard, wouldn't you say? I would. Um, And it's created what I think are some patterns that don't necessarily make it into – um, the public eye because of the very nature of publishing, which is, um, you know, we all have our news outlets and we all have our media outlets that we like to read, um, whether it's, you know, some magazine or whether it's, you know, a certain author who had a book come out this year or whatever it is. But all those things are published works. And what I think it's lost sometimes and some, in an observation I've sort of been slowly making over the past year is that there's a for every, like, essay you read online about whatever state of the current world – there's like 5,000 more of those that weren't as good but got pitched. Yep. And, or written. Right. Or, yeah. yeah. And that brings me to our inboxes, particularly our slush piles and yep. our query lists, right? And we like, had a query day. We had a slush day on Friday, and yeah. this became eminently clear. Well, it was something – and so the, the observation I'm about to make um, is one I've been kind of thinking about for a while. But it was one that I think specifically hit pretty hard – this last week as we were kind of sitting there going – because we – you know, our agency closed for queries this week, right? And so we kind of had to – the last little rush of them to uh, filter through and we were sitting through uh, – sitting there sifting through. And um, to me, I felt like every other query I got was in some way, shape or form a quote-unquote Trump novel. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. Um I mean, honestly, it's as it's as literal as possible in a way. Like, it's a book that you know, in the query especially, features some sort of authoritarian figure or big idiot in charge. You know, like there's always some um, there's some direct reference or very close to direct reference to Trump or the current political climate. You know, everyone, especially um, you know, with the kind of stuff that I represent, right, which is like adult fiction, um, especially tied to current events and um, you know, nonfiction. You know, where that kind of writing is even more influential. But the point is that I feel like every query I get has Trump in it. And to me, it got me thinking about something that I think is much broader than most people are thinking about it right now, at least the people kind of querying and trying to find their artistic selves in the, you know, the current political framework, their current creative lives, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it got me wondering about the, the quote unquote Trump novel. Like what that means what it's going to look like, what sort of books um, we're going to remember years from now from this period that are going to make us think, yeah, you know, these are the books that best represented the age. These are the books that we, um, you know, the pieces of fiction, especially I think this conversation applies to, that most um, – that stand out as true indicators of our age. So 
before we get to kind of what the future is going to think about the books right now. Yeah. Um, are the books that you're getting in your slush pile, are th- are any of those the book that you think is going to take us into the future? No. Okay. So what, <laughs> so, so, you, so these books have yeah. some sort of like big idiot in charge or some sort of fascism, they feature, Nazis, etc. They feature what I would say is a very, very literal, um, universe that resembles the one we currently live in or at okay. least an attempt to grapple with that what uh beyond the world what are i mean all the, are all the plot lines similar are all the stories similar yeah i mean you get a lot of books that feature you know a character who's doing some hashtag resisting you know ah, and like the you hashtags get, <laughs> no and like in the query you often get the hashtag I get told, you know, I get this cracked me up. I get, I got one query that said, "Well, I noticed that you are someone who is constantly retweet, retweeting the hashtag resistance." So I thought I would, uh, I thought I would query you, and I felt like that was about as wrong as it could have possibly gotten in terms. I don't of know. I got research. one yesterday uh, <laughs> about how somebody queried me because my hair was nice. So. That's, honestly, that that is at least more accurate. Than I mean, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Someone queried you because your hair was nice. Yes, they liked my hair. Man. I get a lot of queries because I'm the the one dude in the agency. Yeah, People, because you like they looked at your picture <laughs> we and they just that, felt yeah. you. I think we like, talked about that a couple good. weeks ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of people feel really safe sending me things, and they try to expressly mention why. Um, but anyway, so, <laughs> um, so in these books, in these books, you get a lot of very. Um, there's a lot of big, you know, plots by tyrants that, yep. you know, there's all these government takeovers. It features all the exaggerated and maybe not exaggerated tropes of, you know, our, you know, our current world. Like the storylines, the head, you know, there's a sort of ripped from the headlines quality to mm-hmm. all of them. And to me, they just make me exhausted to read through because they're talking about things that everyone else is already talking about. If that makes sense. Like I feel like I can almost put it on a timer. Like anytime um, something big in the news happens, whatever it is, whether it's some – usually it feels like this year, it's some big horrible event, right? Like some catastrophe happens or some total systemic breakdown somewhere or some just latest embarrassment or indignity or, you know, whatever it is. Um, If I – you give it like two weeks and then I start getting novel queries about that that basically feature that event either in the query or in the book itself. So to be clear, these people had these books and then made them fit kind of the current event model. Well, so that's that's the part I can't quite figure out. And because I think it's a little bit of both. On the one hand, I do think that there are people who and this I think is a good instinct and this is why I get sad and not angry is that there are people who've kind of taken this year and have processed it, you know, as cre- you know, someone who is predisposed to writing a book, right? Like mm-hmm. someone who say, hey, I consider myself a writer. I like to express myself through words, and I'm interested in doing so in a way that gets me published. Um, you know, those people theoretically experienced this moment, you know, or this last, you know, little stretch of history and have decided, man, I got to write something, and they do it, and they do it quickly. Mm. And they do it in a way that still feels like— It's reactive. Yeah, it feels very reactive and feels very temporal to this moment. And so that that's like one camp. And then the other camp I feel like is the one that takes the book they already had and then tries to like sex up the query. Shove it into the right, holes like, that it – Try yeah. to make it sound particularly relevant. You know, like I get a lot of queries that say, you know, this book is a, you know, direct response to the Trump administration. And it's like, ah, 
Is it? I'm already <laughs> having direct responses like, to the I'll Trump feel like administration. All I do in my life is like have direct. <laughs> Um, to be clear, though, this is something that's ha- that's always happened, like yeah. beyond kind of the current administration. You know, it's always, you know, people have their one book and then they change their pitch yeah. based yeah. on what's super hot right now, Hansel. Well, and, I and think, yeah. yeah. And so that's, you, you know, that's that's something that, you know, should always be avoided. You can't like shove a book into you know, another book's framework and kind of accurately sell it. Yeah. But I think what you're hitting on right now is that this isn't working, especially for this type of book, more so than it doesn't work for other types of books because of that general kind of exhaustion. Well, so I think that, yeah, the reason I think it doesn't work by and large, and obviously there are exceptions. There have been a lot of books, you know, especially on the nonfiction side that, um, you know, have been written quickly. You know, the ones that were kind of written after the election, especially like anthology collections of certain pieces. There are a lot of them that I think are pretty worthwhile and have mm-hmm. been, you know, successful and have done a decent job of like either diagnosing the campaign or like writing about the current state of – you know, there's lots of nonfiction stuff that gets written quickly. But fiction's a different beast, I think. And it feels like the Trump novel doesn't exist yet, nor could it. Because we're all too busy staring at the same things, Yeah. if that makes sense. And let me see if I can try to put that into better words than that. Like right now, we all are looking at the same stuff. We're all looking at headlines. We're all looking at – We're all horrified. We're all looking at him. You know, we're all looking at – um, you know, just the this unfoil this unfolding roiling story that just seems to take you know every single day. You know, you have to refresh all your news sites all these times, um, and it's everyone's trying to write that story. Everyone's trying to write a book that relates to those things. And the reason I think that that's off, that instinct is off, and I was tweeting about this the other day, is that that's that's not how we. That's not how we write novels the rest of the time, right? Like the reason I the, – the thing with fiction that really I think is – makes it special is when you write something that no one is looking at but you, you know? Like if you're writing about an experience or you've managed to tap into something that only you can tell, you know, you're not just trying to, you know, fictionalize, you know, the newspaper in a way. You're talking about someone's lives, You know, you're talking about a specific individual that I haven't met yet whose experience or, you know, outlook or position in this society that we've all found to be, you know, so unstable all of a sudden. Um, It's, you know, that person is someone I haven't seen before and that would make it interesting. And I guess like it just brings me to this idea that, you know, because I was sitting there the other day like, okay, well, what is a good – what would be a good Trump novel? Like say it's 2025 and you're like trying to look back on this period. What sort of fiction am I going to be interested in? And to me – it's going to be something that doesn't have that much to do with the news, if that makes sense. It's not going to be talking about the headlines. It's not going to be talking about Trump. There's not going to be some very thinly veiled authoritarian figure that figures in that needs to be foiled, you know, in the in the plot. It's going to be about people's lives. Yeah. Like every good fiction from every era is. <laughs> it's going to be about um, just the way we're all feeling which is just addled and distracted and like sad and angry and energized all at once. Just that feeling that you just can't look away while also wanting to really, really badly. And it's not because we're thinking at all times about like our country falling to bits, but it's because it, that, that informs everything else. It, it, it influences our relationships. It influences our personal decisions. It influences, you know, I mean, all these things, I mean, 
Yeah, no, all this stuff, I mean, it permeates. That's the thing. It's like you if you ask every single one of these writers who's sending me these books, and to be clear, I want to make this clear now, I don't fault anyone for sending me these books. I understand where this comes from, and I understand why these books exist, and I think it's interesting to point out um, that this probably happens during – most periods of cataclysm or, you know, I assume there were a million pitched, you know, Nixon novels, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> it's just that, you know, they all don't get published, you know, like, but there's a certain position that you and I have where we get to actually see all the see all unpublished, you know, pitches for things and really get a sense of the volume of where the creative, um, you know, the population is thinking about. Um, and so it's kind of worth pointing out. But um, I don't know. It's to me. All this stuff is going to come down to actual experience. Like, if, you know, every every one of these people would say, yeah, no, these, this thing has affected every aspect of my life. It's affected the way, like you just said, it's going to affect my relationship. It's going to affect my job maybe in some situations. It's going to affect my, you know, finances or my life plan or my, you know, for a lot of people, their immigration status, their, you know, whatever it is. And my response to that is, well, all of that is way more personal and interesting than trying to write you know, a fictionalized account of what you're seeing in the New York Times, you know, like, I think that the real thing that's going to come from this moment, whatever the first true Trump novel is, it's going to be something that's really specific and personal, at least to me. I mean, you know, we're all just guessing, but like my opinion is that we are going to get something that really doesn't feel the need to broaden itself beyond the usual scope of good fiction, which is, you know, the personal, right? Yeah. And I guess when I think of, you know, obviously of the many tragedies over the last year, you know, one of them from like a book publishing standpoint or a creative standpoint is that this has just dominated so much of our consciousness so much that it's almost become this like creative magnet, right? Like all the people who are think who would otherwise be writing their stories or their books that they had in their head all along are instead writing these sort of replicas of each other. Or they can't write at all. Exactly. Or they can't write at all. That's another big thing. It's like I feel like this – because a lot of people's immediate situations have been kind of thrown into chaos. You know, like I mean writing honestly is something that you do when the rest of your life is kind of stable, right? When like you can't be writing the great American novel if you're worried about where your next meal is coming from. Which you know is what I mean? in like, direct conflict yeah. with the prevailing idea amongst <laughs> yeah. non-writers yeah. is that you can't yeah. write the great American novel yeah. if you're happy. Yeah. No, I mean it's <laughs> – it's, um, yeah, it's, it's tricky, but I just wish like, you know, it's like spending, thinking about like, quote unquote, the year in queries, right? Yeah. It's, I just wish that people could, and I understand why they can't, and I would never say that they're wrong for not being able to, but I just wish that we could just quit thinking about him and quit thinking about it and get back to writing the stories that we really feel we needed to tell in the first place and use the moment as more of a augmenting light that casts over, you know, our work as opposed to being the subject of the work itself. So I think to your point yeah. about like how the good fiction that we remember is mm -hmm. not going to be reactionary, but it's going to be reactionary insofar as that it is also deliberate. Yeah. Um, and I would like to draw everybody's attention. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the man Booker nominees before, yeah. jo uh, before George Saunders just like messed up our betting pool, <laughs> um, <laughs> that Ali Smith, uh, Ali Smith's Autumn, um, which is published by Penguin, 
didn't win, um, but it was nominated. It was for my the, pick to win. It was your pick to win, and it is. Um, it's the first of a four part series, and it is considered the first Brexit novel. Yeah. So. Um, so that could be a good analog. Yeah. So I'm I'm just kind of looking at the Guardian's breakdown mm-hmm. of all of the Man Booker nominees. Sure. Um, and here's I feel like it's really worth it to just read how they describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Autumn is a bittersweet tour de force set in the worst of times, Brexit Britain, an interweaving art, death, and the mysteries of love. Smith's portrait of centenarian Daniel Gluck approaching death and his passionate protege Elizabeth is a stunning exploration of memory and regret, a book that celebrates and entertains as much as it takes us into the twilight world of the dying. So that is... Yeah. Um, that's Not real. at all about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, but it could be though, but and that's the be. thing. Yeah. It's like, and I think that that copy is you know particularly instructive to read because when I read queries, I'm basically reading copy, right? Yeah. Like about these books. Usually, and, a query that that kind of like middle chunk will be turned into your back cover. Yeah, something like that. And what I think is so great about you know the bit you just read is that it is so personal. It's about yeah. memory and death and people, and like it's set yeah in this moment. And it's set during this, you know, quote unquote, worst of times. But the story itself, the brunt of it is all these things that theoretically one would want to write about no matter the period. But they're using the era, you know, the kind of traumatic period that this author is writing in as, like I just said, like a light that kind of casts over it, that changes the shadows, that changes the work. And and that's how I feel like to me, you know, like armchair literary critic over here, like that's how you create something that feels authentic and memorable to the moment and not because you're trying to chase the, you know, you're trying to capitalize on, you know, the hashtag resistance. It's not that and, Smith wrote the first and only existing thus yeah. far Brexit novel. It's that when Autumn was sent to an agent and sent to a publisher this book was written in such a way that it was kind of looked at and considered, oh, this is this is going to last. Because yeah. I would like to point out that the function of fiction in instances like this is very different than nonfiction. Yeah. So nonfiction Absolutely. in very many ways is in- incredibly reactive. I mean, look at look at, you know, Hillary's memoir about the election mm-hmm. and and, you mm-hmm. know, kind of all of the other books that we're seeing right now. Yeah. That one is all about the current moment. They can be written fast, they can be ready to go. Um, you know, there's there's, you know, 10 of them publishing every week. But fiction fiction's not about that. Yeah, it's not. And like um you know, when we when we broke down the Man Booker a few weeks ago, when we were talking about nonfiction, I tried to draw a um, sort of a line between the sort of quick books that sort of try to take on an immediate moment and provide immediate commentary, versus the ones like the one I thought was going to win, The Blood of Emmett Till, which takes sort of a longer view, is patient with its reporting, even in the face of like news explosions, you know, and just wants to. It's just out there to do what it's trying to do yeah. in a way that eventually also feels relevant to the moment. And like you're saying, that rea- that quick reactive bit does feel more suited for nonfiction. I don't know that it works at all in fiction. Like I don't know if you can – because yeah. you start to drift into like allegory almost. You know, it's like – because all yeah. your characters feel like they've got real world analogs and everything. Everything just feels kind of – I don't know. It drifts into preachiness. It drifts yeah. into um, – I mean I think maybe like the closest – 
might be, I mean, but it's also like based in a historical thing is maybe the Underground Railroad yeah. by Colson yeah. Whitehead, but that is yeah. literally sold as an allegory. Yeah. You know, that's that's what it's sold as. But it's also, that book also is so, that book was so personal too. Yeah. And that was such a, you know, like it had all these themes that really resonate, but um, that was still at its fundaments was. About a person. About a person and characters in a moment trying to do something, you know, yeah. and it's like that, like, I guess that to me is like, if there is a tragedy in writing over the last year, it's that a lot of people and with very good reason have sort of lost sight of the fundamentals of their own storytelling, I feel like. And I just wish uh, maybe, you know, as, you know, this kind of, you know, continues and, you know, the world keeps spinning, um, you know, people can maybe refocus. I know I need to. Like, this is not like a how come no one's on, how come no one's focused like me? Like, I'm as unfocused as anyone. The difference is I'm just not writing a novel about, you know, like it's, um, it's, Um, like we're all feeling crazy right now. That's the thing. We all are crazy. Is everyone is totally addled and distracted and online and all these things. I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you seen kind of an uptick in nonfiction about the current moment in your submissions? Yeah. Well, I don't know about an uptick because when you represent nonfiction – you know, you're always getting things about the current moment, no matter what yeah, the current moment that's, is. Right? That's but, fair. But I will say that um, I get a lot more things that are trying to be, you know, that are really kind of hastily written, if we're being honest, um, that are trying to be the big Trump expose, right? Like they're the ones with the detail of that's going to, you know, be the book for, and I keep saying the resistance, but like it's just like this online reactionary movement that, you know, everyone's trying to like inject with like feeling and content for their 15 minutes. And um, so you get a lot of that. And I, but I feel like that's just kind of a symptom of being a nonfiction agent is you get a lot, like I was saying, you get a lot of stuff that two weeks after something happens, suddenly someone has a book proposal on it. And sometimes it's really great. Like for the record, I look for, like if something interesting happens, um, and I can think of someone I would definitely want to hear from. I'll go try to find a writer like that. Yeah. But, um, That's it's, the benefit of nonfiction exactly. is that they don't have to be exactly. fully written. Exactly. Like, so sometimes it's kind of – so I – you know, that's less of a quote-unquote problem to me. But I don't know. Um, you, know the, you know, speaking of that, you know, just that feeling that everyone has, you know, I'm just like taking stock of the year and writing. Um, you know, if anyone else is – as online as I am, um, you've probably noticed that there are certain Twitter personalities um, who have kind of tried to take advantage of that feeling that everyone has. You know, like everyone, you know, there's a huge chunk of the internet right now that is just waiting for impeachment, right? They think it's coming any day now and they're being fed this information by, you know, people who are, you know, claiming, you know, national security expertise or like, um, they're claiming to be experts on Russia, for instance, is a big trope. Um, but they're basically, you know, saying, you know, any day now, folks, you know, Trump's going to get served with that, you know, indictment and it's all going to come tumbling down. And if we just keep tweeting, it'll all go away. <laughs> and, you know, and there's, a, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but you, but you all, anyone listening to this who spends enough time online knows some of the people who I'm talking about, right? And I think there's an equally large subset of people who are really frustrated with this group mm-hmm. who can realize, hey, these people are just lying out their asses and they're trying to take advantage of the fact that everyone is feeling really vulnerable and scared and looking for hope. Um, and I guess I just want to say um, without like 
I don't know, without breaching any sort of anything. Um, those people are now looking for book deals. Okay? And you're getting them. I'm getting queries from these people now. And that means that lots of other people are getting queries from those people. Your least favorite Twitter grifter is now looking to cash in on that. And they're looking to cash in in a way that has nothing to do with supposed expertise about Russia or about, you know, national security or law, you know, or treason or anything like that. They're trying to cash in on their story of, you know, being an Internet celebrity, you know, in the age of, you know, in the age of Trump. Um, and what I would say about that is, like, it just made me – it made me so angry the other day when I got this query because it, there's just certain people out there who are – just absolutely trying to defraud people for 15 minutes, yeah. you know, and just know if you're some of the people who, you know, if you're, you know, someone who's like trying to decide, hey, this person is just making things up online and I have no reason to trust them, but what they're selling is something that would really make me feel good. Just know that they're talking to book publishing professionals about you guys a lot differently than they're talking to you is what I would say. And... <laughs> it's a little bit bleak, but it's just I don't know. It feels it feels especially pernicious to me, and I feel it's at least worth pointing out. But um, you know, they're banking. They're banking on something. They're banking on publishing, and we've talked about this a million times on the show that publishing has a certain reactionary streak to it. That it is going to try to capitalize on these moments in the same way that some of these writers are, and. Um, you know, they're betting that someone in the publishing industry wants to give them a book deal to talk about the same things they've been talking about online. And it's hard to believe that no one is going to take them up on it is, I guess, the part that kind of saddens me a little bit. Like, I believe that, like, I get why they're doing this. I think that they probably have a book that by conventional publishing standards would get, would get done. And, um, I don't know. I hope that that isn't the case. I hope that we can kind of stand up to that a little bit more than I fear that we will um, is what I'll say about that. So I want to talk about something that um, has the potential to be a little bit less bleak <laughs> related to publishing. <laughs> yeah, Not no, saying that so. it is. Right, right. right. I'm saying that it has the potential to be. Yeah. Um, one of the things when, when Eric and I started Print Ronnie, now we're in season two. This is episode 50. Oh, look at five that. Zero. We're halfway to 100. That's a lot of hours of you and me just like staring in each other's <laughs> faces, just talking. Um, yeah. You know, like we've, we've, this podcast has given us the opportunity to kind of have conversations that we would always be maybe a little too afraid to as newer agents. Um, and it also has given us a really, really exciting option to just create something new in publishing. Yeah. Not to say that we're the first people with a podcast ever. No, of course not. Um, but I like to think that we're a little bit special. And so for relatively new agents trying to do something a little bit new, there is constantly kind of something in – you know, at least in the back of my head, I can't speak for the back of Eric's head, yeah. um, about how you fit into what is commonly referred to as the old guard, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the old guard in publishing, you know, like yeah. the old, the old agents who like work until they literally go blind and just mm -hmm. like have millions of deals and so much success. And you look at that and you want to do that. Um, and there, there are certain structures in place in agenting specifically, which, mm -hmm. you know, we've talked about before, like agenting is a very kind of willy nilly 
uh, part of publishing. You know, you you can do it without your pants on, on your couch, <laughs> and you just kind of like sit down and you do it, and you never yeah. know when you're going to sell something, and yeah. you kind of, it's just kind of like a gigantic bet of a career, right? Um, but that's not how people did it before the internet got really big. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they went to offices and they wore pants and they like, <laughs> you, I, I'm harping on this pants thing, but yeah. it's very accurate. Yeah. Um, and they created certain organizations that that kind of reinforced that formality of what could otherwise be this very like loosey goosey profession. Um, I'm talking really specifically about the AAR, Mm -hmm. the Association of Author Representatives. Uh Um, And the AAR, historically, like as a baby agent, you hear about like the AAR and you're like, ooh. Um, Historically, this is the marker of being a good and legitimate agent. Mm -hmm. It's a nonprofit organization um, where basically, you know, there are all these requirements to to become a part of it and there's monthly and we or yearly dues and you know they've got a special newsletter and there's a special database for authors if you want to go look to see who's AAR um verified mm-hmm. you know our agency is you not do actually love trying to get verified I love getting verified <laughs> I haven't been verified ever but I like the idea of yeah. it Eric yeah. um and like even to the point where like our agency, like no one in our agency is AAR, is an AAR member, but like our contracts are still AAR approved right. and like that sort of thing. Like it's kind of traditionally it was this very, very gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, when I joined Red Sofa, you know, I kind of asked, I was like, so I keep hearing about this, this like organization, you know, this very like formal organization. You have to apply, you have to get letters of recommendations, you have to have ex- like examples of deals, et cetera. And I kept, you know, I, I asked a couple of people, I was like, why are you not a part of this? Um, and you asked that because lots of people aren't. Because so many people aren't. There are, you know, like even really conservatively, there's maybe a thousand active yeah. literary agents in the United States. There's 400 AAR members. Hmm. Um, I actually have no idea how many agents there are, but it sure seems like it's more than 400, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I did a cursory check today of like all my, like a good amount of my agent buddies and yeah. like most of them aren't on there. Yeah. You know, most of my, yeah. you know, the people that are very, very, very highly regarded in many, many ways. Um, and one thing that I was thinking about um, is that an organization like this or kind of in any job, especially in publishing, where you can just kind of like throw down and say, I am an official. I am official and I am a good person who does this job. Um, you know, an editor, in an agent, etc. Um I I I find that the organization that kind of verifies that is really important, but this particular one hasn't necessarily been keeping up with the times. So why do you say that? Because what you're describing to me um, is a certain is a certain problem, right? Or not necessarily a problem, but a certain I think disjoint, which is um, you've got sort of this controlling body, yes, right, and yet lots and lots and lots of people who would theoretically be in that profession are not a part of it. Correct. And so why do you think that is? Well, I think that 
finding an agent is very different than what it used to be. Right. Right. Um, so before, you know, you couldn't just like go and look at somebody's Twitter account or find their profile in Manuscript Wishlist or, or like take a class from them on Manuscript Wishlist Academy or like have a Twitter contest, yeah. you know, where they'd request something for you. Like there used to be only a few places to find an agent. Mm -hmm. And given that those few places, it was, I think it was a little bit easier to control and it was a little bit easier to, to show who had a record and who was quality. Right. Um, but now there's information everywhere, you know, pay $25 and you get publishers marketplace. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things that kind of makes me bristle a little bit about AAR right now is that I am worried that they're not keeping up with what it means to be a good, successful agent. In the 21st century yeah, right in now. in the 21st century. They're, um, they're the establishment, mm -hmm. and most of the people who do this job and are part of what is now the establishment are not members of this. Sure. And so that allows, I think, a big a lot of space for people who are very predatory to kind of not, you know, not get caught, essentially. <laughs> well, so distill, distill for our listeners where your, um, you know, where your concern is. Like, what about, you know, the organizing body, you know, like, what about it feels out of date to you? So one of the big things that catches me, um, I am an agent that is not obviously in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, so when I look at, like, the benefits of joining a particular professional organization. Yeah. Um, and this is true of kind of all professional organizations, but there are some geographical benefits, mm -hmm. right? If, it, if an organization is based in New York City, they're probably going to do things for people in New York City. And if you're not in New York City, it's not necessarily worth it. Um, but as we talked about on the show before, more and more and more people are leaving New York to do this job, especially more. Yeah, I was going to say in publishing more like of the people leaving New York in publishing, I would say probably most of them are agents. You yeah. know, like that's because that's the people who have and might have the flexibility to go do their job elsewhere. Yeah. More so than an editor at a house. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. the Internet exists. Right. And so like a lot of the benefits of an organization like the AAR, which I'm actually enormously jealous of, is that they yeah. have you know, these, these special industry events mm -hmm. and I can't go to any of them. Yeah. Like I can't fly to New York every time I want to go right. to happy hour. Well, it just creates kind of a environment where it sort of reinforces some of the geographic norms that yeah. we've talked about a lot of times on this show is not necessarily being help, helpful or healthy to the industry at large. Yeah. Like how many of your, like when you think of your agent friends right now, more and more of them aren't in New York City anymore. I think only right? one, yeah, maybe two. Like it's yeah. everyone's sort of spread out, and so, and you know, as we've talked about, you know, New York is expensive. Um, publishing jobs don't pay that well, and we're going to get more into that in a second. Um, but you know, creating a body that sort of is incredibly focused on that bit can tend to, you know, shrink the pipeline. Whereas the way in which people find agents right now has become much more broad. You can go and find an agent's Twitter, like you were saying, right? Yep. Like you can, you know, there's lots and lots of ways people talk to literary agents that have nothing to do with um, industry databases anymore, right? Yeah, and I, 
you know, kind of beyond the New York thing and kind of limiting who can be a good official agent. Because mm-hmm. um, I would probably argue that the AAR is not not quite the gold star, like necessary um, seal of approval that it maybe once was. Um, the field is diversified. The field in, is diversified. In approach and everything. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so one, one of the things that just like rankles me um, is that, you know, like any any really good professional organization, they have kind of a code of ethics, a code of morals. Right. And that's especially important for an agent job. Yes. Right. Yes. Because you are I mean, it, it's so important to not be a predatory agent, to mm-hmm. not charge your author for the work that you do or for every time that you submit it. It's, you know, it's it's essential to making sure that authors get paid because as we know, yeah. they don't get paid and, <laughs> very much. And it's important that, you know, as a means of preventing that sort of predatory behavior, there is a body that can hold agents accountable. Exactly. Right. Like it is like I think, you know, something that should be clear is that we the existence of something like the AAR and even the AAR itself are very good things. Like this is something that needs to exist. Right. It's I think I think it just needs to exist in a slightly different way. And so the really, really big thing. And I think personally, the reason that I am not a member of the AAR at this very given moment Uh um, is number eight in their in their canon of ethics. Um, and that basically talks about how literary agents cannot charge clients or this is very important potential in clients for reading and evaluating literary works. Mm-hmm. So they include in literary works to be outlines and proposals as well as like pages and completed manuscripts. Mm-hmm. So like to be clear, taken just kind of very basically like if you are submitting to my slush pile, yeah. I am 100% against you having to pay for that. And no one that for just for the record, no one should ever pay for that. Like no, no, no. if some agent is like charging you to you know, you know, either get submitted or have your manuscript looked at or something like that's that's crazy and you shouldn't do it. Right. But so but is the big thing here. Yeah. So there has been, you know, and we've talked about this on the show before, that agents have historically been seen as like the big gatekeepers. You know, uh-huh. there's kind of this antagonistic relationship between agents and writers because At of this. At least in popular perception, yeah. Exactly. Because the agents will, you know, they like to turn you down. They want you to, they want you to kind of not get published and they will only let some people get published. Yeah. Um, and I think that the not profiting off of authors or like potential clients um, kind of reinforces this gatekeeper mentality. Let also, me explain. Yeah. Um, so I have been getting invited to conferences for 2018, right? Um, some of these conferences, you know, I mean, most of these conferences will pay for you to go. Like they'll pay for your ticket. They'll pay for your hotel room. They'll feed you this whole time. And kind of in exchange, you know, you give your time and your attention and you take pitches, et cetera. That's really, really, really great um, if you're young and you don't have stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. But like if you are a brand new agent and you are working, you know, a full time job somewhere else because you're only making commissions and you're not making enough. um. That makes it really hard because you're essentially giving up a weekend plus one workday. So Friday, Saturday and Sunday mm-hmm. um, to go essentially work for free for three days. Yeah. I will do this many, many times a year. I love doing this. But mm-hmm. do you know what I also love? 
when p- I get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. And so I, you know, and, and there's nothing in the AAR code of ethics to be clear um, that says that you cannot get paid at all for a conference. However, getting paid for like per however many pitches you take yeah, or if somebody, you know, if they wanted you to, to do 10, um, like a 10 page critique to somebody yeah, or, you know, kind of like help them with their synopsis yeah. or, you know, those other related reading materials. Um, I, I mean, you're essentially doing editorial work and I do think that it is only fair to get paid for that kind of within the confines of other professional structures. Well, so I think, you know, you, you dropped a detail in there that I'm not sure most of our listeners are aware of, but I think it's a pretty significant one. Um, which is that many, many agents are not, you know, it's not a big salaried employee job. No. Right? People, agents are paid on commission. They are paid the cut of the book sales that they accumulate, right? In there like, are a few agencies where they get salaries sure. and then they get bonuses. Right. But that's, you but know, really, that, really old agencies. But even that structure is used as a means of lowering the salary yeah. because then you can, you know, like you, you get the idea. But the point is that agent agenting is not like on its face a job that comes with a lot of stable pay. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it creates a lot of, you know, stretches where maybe finances aren't necessarily certain. It creates, in, like you're saying, when you have to give up time to go to a conference or something. On the organ- hope that one out of a thousand people you talk to will have the book that you want to sign. Um, yeah, exactly. And an organization, you know, that brings you in is selling this conference to writers based on the fact that you're going to be there. Yeah. Like theoretically, you know, writers are signing up for in the addition, chance to. Yeah. Most conferences charge authors to pitch. Or yeah. for a critique. Right. You know, so on top of the conference fee, which very often can be quite hefty. So the author's already paying. The author's already yeah. paying. But for us to to for to have a professional organization that, you know, and to be yeah. fair, I am reading these code, you know, the code of ethics at the most kind of stringent version of the, the verbiage. It's how they're here. perceived in the industry, though. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so like getting paid, I mean, you can get paid if you want to give it to a charity, but yeah. like, what if I want to give it to my grocery bill charity? <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Like what, what if, what yeah. if I need to put gas in my car? What if I need to pay a medical bill? I, I would just love, like, I, I want an organization like this to have more people in it. And to do that, I think it's really important to lay out specific structures that accounts for the fact that people are finding you online. It accounts uh-huh. for innovation. Like, I mean, like, I, you know, I'm tooting my own horn here, but like the query show or, right. you know, you know, kind of another organization where you are giving critiques. You know, I, I, I am so passionate in this business about Agents being more than gatekeepers. I am passionate about them being fountains of knowledge, and I am there for them being industry experts. But being in all, so this is the thing I think is that um, you know most of this code you know it sort of doesn't account for the fact that nearly every agent working, especially younger ones like our age who live in you know the gig economy, who live who have to constantly be scrapping together various different forms of revenue. You know, nearly every agent has some sort of other form of income. They've got a side hustle. We both do. Right? Yeah. And you almost have to because of the way the pay is structured where, um, 
you know, that you can't necessarily count on, you know, salaried steady pay all the time, you know, working in the field. And so you, by necessity, in order to live your life, you have to go do other things. And so to restrict that, to say that doing that is antithetical to the job, you can see, you know, similar to some of the other conversations we've had, um, it can limit the talent pool of who can actually be an agent, right? Someone who, like a lot of people can't afford to, um, you know, work as an agent under AAR, you know, circumstances if they're not allowed to be paid for, you know, other related book tasks. Or, you know, it might not be worth it to an individual to have a completely separate side hustle and then be agenting, or I guess agenting would be your side hustle in that. But like, wouldn't you love it if your side hustle was related to your actual passion job? Yeah. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, tons of, you know, tons of agents do like freelance editing for instance, right? And they make it very – and this, again, like, you know, you hit on it earlier. I think it needs reinforcing now. Like, if you're talking to an agent about your manuscript, about representation, there should be no money involved anywhere. Like, you should not be paying for that. There's no – just so we're absolutely clear here. Like, you should not – no one talking to an agent about agenting should be paying that organization or that agent any money, right? Like, that – and most agents who do and, do edits or do right. do critiques will separate. say, and yeah, exactly. And that's if what, I right. do this for right. you, you will right. never be able so, to query me. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And I think that's a crucial point. And so when we talk about things, you know, like, you know, some of these, you know, other ways in which, you know, agents could theoretically be paid for their labor, we are not talking about monetizing the, like, query pipeline or, the, you know, like that's... Or the actual agenting pipeline. Yeah, exactly. It's just helping other writers because yeah. the fact of the matter is, is, like, you can only sell so many books. So... For example, the AAR membership requirements to be a full member says that you have to have 10 deals in the last 18 months. Uh That's actually an extraordinarily large amount of deals for an agent. It's a solid amount. It's a really good amount. That's not that many deals. So that's 10 authors that you're working with in 18 months. But there are so many. I mean, like we get 10,000 queries a year. And Mm -hmm. how many of those people do we sign? Like one, two, maybe five. Right. You know, what about all those other people? Like, can't we help them too? Yeah. That would be nice. No, I just think like, so if you take away, this is when you say help them too, what you're talking about, I think. Give them information. Is you're talking about um, all of these things that you're seeing in terms of author resources right now. Like so many, I would say that most of the author resources available that come from the publishing industry, most of them are coming from agents. Yeah, I would right? agree. Like you've got, and you've got like, yeah, podcasts. you've got blogs and podcasts <laughs> and like, you know, you know, databases and sites and like critiques and, you know, pitches and pitch contests and things like that. All of that is coming from, um, you know, agents. And if you make that stuff and all those agents who are participating and getting, you know, paid from that, most of those people, you know, they're not, you know, they're not AAR members because that wouldn't be allowed. You yeah. know, nobody and wants so, to be a gatekeeper. Right. That's and not so, fun. That's not a fun part of our job. Right. And so if you take away that, you're actually you're taking away, you know, information for authors. And if you're taking away that, um, if you're taking away information for authors and suddenly you're narrowing the pool and you can get kind of at the, some of the same issues we've talked about before, which is suddenly the only people who get to play are the ones with access to, um, you know, Manhattan establishment contacts. And I think we both think and I think the AAR probably thinks that it's. You know, that's not the direction you know, that we want publishing to go in. Yeah. I would I would love for an organization like this, specifically this organization, to help 
reinforce kind of the exciting, changing landscape of publishing by doing things like making it clearer about what an agent can do to, uh, you know, still be ethical, but also like make money in their chosen profession. I would really love it if they had, you know, more, more webinars or kind of events all around the country. I would Mm -hmm. really, really love it if they were more than just a database of their author or their agents Mm -hmm. for authors. Like I would love it if they gave more information. Like I want them to be what they once were, which is the resource for people who want to publish right. Well, I think it just needs some updating. I think think you and I are both, um, I don't know if this has come through, but you know, we're both pretty pro existence of the AAR. You oh, know, like very. we need this. Like I know I think that, you know, um most of what they do is really, really good. I just think that, you know, as we, you know, enter an age where publishing is, you know, diversifying geographically and otherwise, you know, some things need a little bit of updating. And I would say like, you know, author, you know, maybe some authors who are listening, they're thinking, well, should I should I be looking for an AAR agent? Um, you know, that's kind of the fundamental question, right? Like as an author, should I be looking for an agent within this? And the answer I think is I don't know that it necessarily matters up front, but what I will say is good to do is if you're working with someone and you're you're questioning some of their behavior, mm-hmm. it's good to use AAR guidelines yeah. because like 90 – like everything but that rule about pay um, for certain activities. I mean I think that all of those things are really, really good and like you'll, you'll notice even agencies, you know, that aren't a part of, you know, the organization, they'll try to stick to the conventions, you know, like, you know, using a, a contract template from the – you know, from that organization or, you know, adhering by, you know, financial rules with clients that are come from the organization. Yeah. Like all of those things, you know, blanket good. You know, I think that those things all need should be paid attention to. It just comes down to the fact that agents no longer are sitting in corner offices in Manhattan anymore. Yeah. You know? they, maybe they need... don't want to pay those $300. And maybe so... they want to use that to go to Frankfurt and sell your foreign rights instead. And so – some of that ha- some of the you know the pay structures has to broaden into you know to further out that experience a little bit and i think that that would be more useful for everyone okay so speaking of useful for everyone <laughs> <laughs> Great transition. Really Thank good. you. Really strong stuff. I um I I want to give the right tip uh-huh. for this week. Uh-huh. Um we're in the throes of nano. The throes. I'm the throes of nano. Um and I just want to remind you out there, gentle writer, mm-hmm. that every time you write a book, remember that you are learning how to be good at it. Give yourself permission to let your process change. Give yourself permission to completely suck at it. Uh Um, Writing is not a skill that you just have. And it's also not a skill that like once you like write one book, you're like, oh, good. I know how to do that now. Um, It's something that you're constantly working with. And as your ideas change, that's always going to be new, especially if this is, you know, your first book or especially if this is something, you know, that you've never tried before. You know, maybe you were writing one genre. Now you're writing another. Maybe you're writing for kids where before you were writing for adults. Um, it's a skill that you're constantly developing. Um, so so be gentle with yourself and kind of just like let it happen and know that December is coming because um, – <laughs> Should we say where we got that tip? We should. We should. Um, I was talking to my book doula. Your book doula. Yeah. 
Um, I have a book doula. Um, it comes in the form of uh, Lily Anderson's DMs on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, anytime. Remember when we made fun of book doulas and now you actually have oh, one? Oh, yeah. I have I have Lily. Um, she's helping me birth this book, um, and it's great. Um, but, no, I was complaining about how dumb and bad I was, and she was perfectly helpful with that bit of advice that you just read out, which is that, um, you know, writing a first book is tough. Writing a second and, book or writing an eighth yeah, book. And it's you have to be willing to be nice to yourself as you learn how to do it. Um, have you been nice to yourself this week? Um, well, so that was, what, a few days ago. I think, I think I'm being a little nicer to myself. That's yeah. lovely. That's I'm so good. glad. Thank you, Lily. Um, <laughs> um, anyway. As a reminder, Query episode goes live next Thursday. Uh, Writing by Reading is the 23rd and first pages will go live November 30th. Thank you so much for listening. 